0: morning. So as we begin this uh, fourth Sunday in the season of Advent, I would like you to, you can't stop me, permit me to Scrooge out for just a moment before we get to the good news. Um, Kim and I were at a Christmas show at Beef and Boards uh, last week, a week ago Friday, and uh, I just was not into it at all. Most of the the songs were about anything but the main event of Christmas. Now, I'm not a prude. I'm not a legalist. Uh, I can enjoy Jingle Bell Rock in small doses, Frosty the Snowman, Walking in a Winter Wonderland. But when they sang Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, complete with four dancers dressed as reindeer, and then a guy in a full-on reindeer suit came flying from the back of the auditorium on a wire to the stage, well, I was done. I leaned over to Kim and I said, nothing about this feels li- remotely like Christmas to me. Now the Christmas shows I've attended locally uh, have been different. They've done a better job, in my opinion, of mixing in the sacred with the secular. Uh, and I appreciate it. So those of you in particular who work in public schools, Joe and John, thank you very much. Uh, I've been a part of that uh, those processes sometimes, seeing what goes on, and I, uh, I am thankful for that. Um, But that was not the case at Beef and Boards a week ago. I have a question for you. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, what is the best-selling Christmas single of all time? Does anyone know? Joe. Correct answer, White Christmas. 50 million plus sales, 50 million plus. Not only that, White Christmas also happens to be the best-selling single of any kind in history. Christmas or otherwise. Next question. Latest statistic I have is 2016. What Christmas song is the most digital downloads as of 2016? Who said that? Kurt, give her her prize. I'm just kidding. (laughs) All I want for Christmas is you, Mariah Carey. Second place, in case you're wondering, do you want to build a snowman? All I want for Christmas is you is also the uh, most used for cellular ringtones. My personal favorite version of that song, however, is the uh, stitched together, mashed up version of Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise. (laughs) I have uh, included a link to that in the Bible app live event. (laughs) You are welcome. There are different ways to measure popularity of songs, of course. There is some disagreement, depending on how they they, uh, measure this, some disagreement on which ones are most popular and so forth. But what is not in disagreement is that other than the appearance of being Crosby's uh, 1935 version of Silent Night, and Mary, did you know, (laughs) there are uh, no other songs that deal with the birth of Christ in the most popular Christmas songs. And yes, by the way, Mary did know, and she would like you to stop asking the question. (laughs) Most of the songs we hear this time of year and entertainment or the songs that we uh, stream online do not even touch this most profound reality of this season, and that is this. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. I think there should be a response to that. Let's see how you do. People, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I'm, I'm saying applause is okay here. I'm going to say applause. Okay. One year during, I've told you this story before, but it was years ago. One year uh, uh, during the season of Advent, while I was pastoring at Bethany Covenant Church in Lyndhurst, Ohio, one of my neighbors uh, left up his Halloween decorations for weeks went deep into the season of Advent. But that's not the worst part. The worst part is, on my way to church one Sunday morning during Advent, he had put up his Christmas decorations and had not taken down his Halloween decorations. So there were Jesus, Mary, and Joseph in all their plastic glowing glory, surrounded not by angels and wise men and and shepherds, but by tombstones and spiderwebs and zombie arms and heads coming out of the ground. Obviously, none of this takes into account the wonder of Christmas, the wonder of what happens and what John talks about in his first chapter, verses 1 to 18. In verses 1 to 18, we are introduced to a cosmic, world-changing event. Now, as we read his first few verses here, his first words, I want us to note the language that he uses is borrowed from the only other book in our Bibles that begins this way, John 1, 1 through 5 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John wants us to know that the incredible, epic drama of Christ did not start in Bethlehem. It started... At the beginning of all things. And it is cosmic in nature. John wants us to know that this, this word is light and life, and that the darkness, like the darkness over the waters in Genesis 1, the darkness does not, cannot, will not overcome the light. John does not mention the Son of God or Jesus or Christ yet. He calls him the Word. The Word. The Greek word is logos. For Greeks, John's Gospel, uh, for Greeks reading John's Gospel, logos meant reason—the reason behind everything, the reason behind the cosmos, the reason that gave it order. This is very similar to what God's spoken word does in Genesis chapter one. It speaks order into what was previously formless and empty and chaotic. the The Hebrew word for that, tohu wabohu, it's fun to say but it sounds like what it is. It's formless, it's empty, it's chaotic. For Jews reading John's gospel, Lagos referred both to God's spoken word and to wisdom, with a capital W, because in ancient Jewish literature, as I've told you before, wisdom is personified as a woman, a woman who was with God at creation. In Proverbs 8, for example, the lady wisdom cries out for everyone to listen to her and to follow her ways, and then she gives us her origin story. Proverbs 8, verses 22, 23, and skipping down to 27. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago, at the very beginning, when the world came to be, verse 27. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep. Wisdom was present at creation. The word was present at creation. John wants his Greek readers to understand the word as the reason behind the order of creation. He wants his Jewish readers to understand the word as wisdom who was at the creator's side from the very beginning and the spoken word through which everything that was created was created. Likewise, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Jesus is again identified as wisdom. Paul writes Chapter 1, verses 22-24, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, we preach Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The power of God and the wisdom of God. Keeping in mind that these biblical metaphors aren't meant to be taken literally, Christ is the wisdom of God. To understand Lagos as word, as wisdom, as Christ, is a very dense, complex, and beautiful portrait of God. We can hear this connection between wisdom and the word in something I discovered just this week. Never heard of these before, and I discovered them this week. The O antiphons. The O antiphons are brief prayers that are sung or prayed each evening during Advent, beginning on December 17th. As far back as the 4th century... Christians were asked to mark that day, the 17th of December, as beginning a 21-day period, ending on Epiphany, January 6th, and it's time we take January 6th back for Epiphany in the kingdom of God. Yeah. January 6th is the day the Magi arrived with their gifts. That's what we mark on that day. During this time, we are, during these 21 days, we are called upon to focus on the mystery and the gift of the Word made flesh, people stepping into this rhythm were encouraged to turn away from any distractions and to give prayerful attention to what God has done for us when the Word became flesh. Each day from December 17th to the 23rd, people were asked to pray or sing one of these antiphon prayers for Christmas. The first day of this period is marked by the praying of the O antiphon addressed to wisdom. That would have been Friday. Friday. O wisdom, coming forth from the mouth of the Most High, reaching from one end to the other, mightily and sweetly ordering all things, come and teach us the way of prudence. Both wisdom and word are present in that prayer. And, And how does this wisdom, how does this word of God come to us? How will the word order all things? Skip down to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The Creator of the universe has come to us in the flesh. The Creator has become a part of His creation. The divine has become human and that is not to say that He is no longer divine. The creeds hold that Jesus was totally human and totally divine. How does that work? I have no idea. And whether we fully grasp it or understand it doesn't mean it's not true. And to say that it's a mystery, to say that we don't know, to say that we may never fully understand it, is not to say that we can't know it. It is endlessly knowable. It is endlessly knowable. There's always more to know of Christ and His incarnation. And incarnation, there's that theological word again, The act of being made flesh, the embodiment of a deity in human form. Specifically, of course, the incarnation refers to the Christian doctrine of that name, which John testifies to when he tells us that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The truth of Emmanuel, God with us, became truer on that day than it ever had been before. And while we do sometimes refer to our Bibles as the Word of God, that should, in my opinion, always be a lowercase w. When you see it as an uppercase w, it is referring to Jesus. The Word of God is Christ, the Son of God. And when this Word, this eternal Christ, becomes flesh, everything changes. This Tuesday, 1058 a.m., the winter solstice will occur. Most of us know that the winter solstice is the shortest day of the year and that every day after that, the days get a bit longer all the way until June 21st, the summer solstice, the longest day of the year. What many of us may not know is that precisely at that moment, 10.58 a.m., at that moment, this Tuesday, the sun will appear to stand still if you could perceive these things. That's what the word solstice means, stand still. It will appear to stand still for just a moment, if we could actually see it. And then it will move slightly to the north as the earth tilts. Of course, it's not the sun that actually moves. We're the ones that are moving. But in our perception, it will be the sun. And from that brief still moment on, the light begins to return to the world. The same is true of the day when the Word was made flesh. At that moment, light began to come into the world like never before. So one of the things I invite you to do, along with me, this Tuesday, is at 10.58 a.m., set yourself an alarm so that you know it's coming. I just saw the tailors. Good to see you. They'll never come back. Set your alarm on your phone, 10.58. If you happen to still have these things from the eclipse a few years ago, as I do, two pair, uh, put them on, go out and look up at the sun. If you don't have these, do not go out and look up at the sun. It's supposed to be mostly sunny that day. Just look at it for a moment, exactly that moment, and consider what is happening in the cosmos. A shift. And from that moment on, 10.58 a.m., the light begins to return. And as you do that, as you do that, I want you to, if you can't look at the sun, uh, just be aware of the moment, and in that moment, stop, reflect on the sun, reflect on the light returning to the world, reflect on the incarnation, and I invite you to pray the O Antiphon prayer for that day, which is, O morning star, splendor of light eternal and sun of righteousness, come and enlighten those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death. Pray that prayer for yourself, pray that prayer for your loved ones, your friends, your neighbors who do not know the light of Christ or have not experienced the light of Christ. John 1, 1 through 18 is the prologue to the gospel. Several scholars that I consulted uh, say that uh, it was actually more of a hymn or a poem that John has written. It's to set the stage for what is about to come. It functions in the same way that uh, an overture might function if you go to see a musical show. So... If you're sitting in the audience, and and some of not all of them anymore, but uh, will open, not with what's happening on the stage, but in the orchestra pit, you'll hear the orchestra begin to play, and the first thing they will play is an overture. And in that overture, there are themes, if you listen carefully, of all the songs you're going to hear throughout the rest of the evening. In terms of film, probably the most recognizable and iconic uh, music that does this is the theme from Star Wars. Again, listen carefully to this music, this main title theme from Star Wars and you will hear themes coming and going in this musical introduction to Star Wars A New Hope. Luke has a theme, Leia has a theme, Vader has a theme, and all of them make an appearance. In addition, I found a website, the things I do to come up with good stuff for a sermon, I found a a website that broke John Williams composition for Star Wars down into the first minute and six seconds broke it down to show you the emotion he was intending to to call to mind as you listen to the music. It goes from fanfare and excitement, it goes into uh, sort of an increased activity and uh, adventure, and then it goes to this little beautiful section of compassion, and then it goes to victory. Right there in that minute and six seconds, you are getting a tip-off as to what's going to happen as the rest of the movie unfolds. So really, you already know, in the first minute and six seconds, that Death Star is going down. (laughs) You can hear it. This introduction of important themes is what John is doing in his overture, in his prologue. He's setting the stage for several themes that are going to pop up over and over again as we read through John's 21 chapters. Light and darkness, life and death, belief and unbelief, acceptance and rejection, Fallen creation and new creation. John ends his overture with a few statements that will influence the rest of his gospel, only this time I'm going to switch translations. Normally I have the NIV up there, but the Greek in this is apparently pretty tricky, and you can tell that if you look through uh, different translations of it. they, They all have slightly different spins on it. I don't happen to like what the NIV does with this one phrase. John 1, 16 through 18. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. As the law was given through Moses, so grace and truth came into being through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. God, the only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made God known. That's from the contemporary English Bible. The NIV says that we have all received grace instead of grace already given. I don't like that. And almost nobody else does that. I can't find anybody else saying that. Everybody else says some version of grace on top of grace. The law was God's grace to his people, but the coming into being, the incarnation of God's grace and truth in the person of Jesus Christ is grace on top of grace that we have already been given in the law of Moses. Finally, two things stand out for me in these two verses here, three verses. First, depending on which translation you read, verse 18 might say that the son was at the father's side or near the father's heart. Or in the arms of the Father, or more literally, as the King James Version has it, at the Father's bosom. The word has been replaced since about the mid-1700s because it makes us uncomfortable. It's a picture. It's a picture of Jesus being nursed by the Father God. It is a powerful metaphor of the intimacy between the Father God and God the Son. Later on, John 13, 23, these are the only two places John uses this word in all of his gospel. That word pops up again. Though, once again, it is covered over and hidden by modern translations. John himself will recline against the bosom of Jesus. The intimacy between father and son is then the model for the intimacy that Jesus longs to have between himself and all who want to follow him. So now we can go back to the latest version of the NIV where we are told no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Although the NIV avoids the uncomfortable language of the original, it does at least get at this idea of intimacy between the Father God and Jesus. This is the kind of relationship God has made available to us by taking on flesh and bone. In a very real sense, we are invited into the fellowship, into the love, into the community that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, into the Trinity. Second, you may remember from when I preached on this passage four years ago or so, that the word translated as made him known, Jesus made the Father God known, That word is the same word from which we get a scholarly word, exegesis. It means to pull out of the text what is there and to bring it to light. It is a noun that those of us who study and teach and preach the Bible use to describe what we do, the process by which we bring out the meaning in the text, bring it to light and interpret it. I do exegesis every week. Jesus exegetes, brings to light and interprets God for us. Jesus exegetes, brings to light, and interprets God for us. One translation says it this way, that Jesus unfolds the explanation of who God truly is. When we look at Jesus, we see what God is like. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. When we encounter Jesus, we encounter God with us, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And when the Holy Spirit dwells within us, God is with us in a whole new way. This is what God has done for us. The Word made flesh makes God known to us, enables us to better understand God, makes God seen by us, and enables us not only to know God or to know about God, but to experience God in a relationship. And in our journey through John's Gospel, we will stop We'll take note of all the ways that Jesus, through teaching and preaching and miracles, brings God out to us, makes God better seen and known to us. So this morning we begin in John chapter 1. Over the next few months we will walk through the whole book together. We will see Jesus, the Word made flesh, and we will see and come to know God more fully. But that cannot happen on Sunday mornings alone, friends. It will take some commitment some intentionality on your part as well. So I invite you, if you have not already done so, to sign up for our daily scripture emails each morning. You'll get a brief introduction from me, a couple of questions to reflect on, and a short passage from either the Gospel of John or uh, another passage in scripture that helps us better understand what's happening in John for that week. There's a link in the Bible app to sign up. Otherwise, when you fill out your online communication card, you can sign up for it there as well. Also in the Bible is a link to all the O antiphons that I mentioned, and I invite you this, the rest of this week to pray the one for each day as we're moving towards Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Just sit in silence for a few minutes as you do that. So the night, Kim and I were at Beef and Boards, and we've been going to Beef and Boards for 14 years, and most of the time we really enjoy ourselves. Right toward the end, however, of this thing I had to sit through, <laughs> right toward the end... <coughs> Um, something rather profound happened. One of the cast members began to sing, finally, O Holy Night. And, and there are some powerful lyrics in that song, so much so that I could almost say it was worth wading through all the smalty music beforehand in, in order to get to O Holy Night, almost. But in that moment, in that moment, I was able to worship God. In that moment. And I like to think that others, whatever their background might have been in that moment, were at the very least moved by what was happening. And maybe it's just my bias kicking in, but I am convinced that people applauded louder for that song than anything else that had gone before. I admit, all of the schmaltzy Christmas music and stories bother me. On the other hand, while most of them do not celebrate explicitly the main event of the Christmas season their near constant presence can at the very least be a reminder to us that what happened in the Holy Land more than 2,000 years ago mattered it mattered its impact reverberated out from that little town of Bethlehem all the way to the present and will continue going on even though its waves of impact may be diminished every now and then as it gives way to popular culture and lets go of some of the imagery. Even so, even so, the imprint of the word made flesh is still there if somewhat buried under the dust and the debris of sentimentality. It's there. The roots of the Word made flesh run beneath it all and can still be seen, recognized, celebrated by those of us who know and have experienced Christ in our lives, in our hearts, and relationships. Even some of the worst songs out there, I think, hide the seeds of the Incarnation. Maybe not Santa Baby. (laughs) Or The Man with the Bag. I hate that one, too. but I think underneath it all, just the fact that these songs exist, there is a seed of the incarnation that is hidden, this planet there, and in some way, in the sovereignty of God, maybe all of it, for those with ears to hear, can point us to what God has done in the Word made flesh. Because of Jesus, the one who exegete, who brings God out to us so that we can experience God like never before. Because of him, we can experience life instead of death. We can experience light instead of darkness. We can experience the new creation over the fallen creation. And in him, we have the right to become the children of God. In the next to last chapter of John, he gives us his purpose statement that ties all the way back to this prologue. John 20, verses 30 and 31 says this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. Having life, friends, is not just about where we go when we die. It's about how we live now. It's about the promise that there is a way to live now that is abundant and good and gracious and free and wise. And the way to that abundant life is Jesus, the Word made flesh. So let us lean into Jesus as John did at the Last Supper. Let us lean into Jesus as the pre-existent Christ leaned into the Father for nourishment. And let us lean into Jesus day by day, trusting that he is indeed God with us, Emmanuel. I want to lead you in a breath prayer again. and invite you to close your eyes when we pray. You need to see what it says. (laughs) Inhale on Maranatha, which is a Hebrew word that just means come Lord. Exhale, simply say to yourself, come Lord Jesus. Inhale, Maranatha. Exhale, come Lord Jesus. Would you join me in just a few seconds of breathing quietly, praying that prayer.